today what we're doing is we're introducing them uh, as they're getting ready to go, as uh, they're looking for support. And so this is an introduction of that. We'll be praying over them as they've gotten to that point where they're ready to go, and then we'll, we'll put them in the prayer pit and pray for them. But today is a t- time to be introducing that. First, I want to start with a question. How many have heard of YWAM? All right, a lot of people. How many know somebody that's attended YWAM? All right. How many YWAMers are out there? There's a few. All right. All right, well, in our journey, we started, uh, we went to a perspectives class and got God's Heart on Missions. It's a 16-week class. Really changed the way that we looked at missions. And uh, we are still, I was kind of holding our family back from doing it. Felt like the money was a big deal. And uh, went out to Colorado for a job that I was offered there. The job turned to be a joke when I got there. And it was like, well, we're really close to YWAM in Colorado Springs. So it was like, that's the only way God would get me out there, probably. So I, I kind of said, okay, let's do it. We're six months. We're going to go uh, take uh, six months DTS, which is a discipleship training school. Uh, totally transformed the way I look at my relationship with God, who God is. I encourage anybody that has any inclination of going to YWAM to do it. Uh, it is phenomenal training. The teaching is unbelievable. Uh, you get to see people that have lived with Jesus and that they walk the walk. And it's, uh, it's awesome. So we went to that, and now we're decided to go to a YWAM base in Oswa, Dominican Republic. And we're excited to going. We feel our strength is like the hospitality and caring for the, the mission, uh, people that want to go into missions and to love on them. And um, I'll just let Sabrina share the rest with what's happened with her. Okay, I had to keep quiet while God pushed him. And God told me to be quiet, so I was quiet for a year. <laughs> Try that. <laughs> when you're a talker. <laughs> um, we um, went and visited Ottawa, um, Dominican Republic. They have a base there that's over a year old. And um, they're new, but they already met their five-year goal. And they are desperate for help because um, it's just one couple running the base. Our son is there now because he's been on staff with YWAM for four years now. And um, he's working with the DTS team. And so we're going to come and help run the space. And, um, you know, we're good at loving people. And we just want to love. And um, we're, we're disciplers. We want to disciple. Um, we're going to go and help with um, teams that because we're receiving base as well. And we're going to help with teams and local outreaches there. We'll be working with farm, Farming God's Way and also in Haiti. Um, so it's we got a lot we're going to do. Um, it's endless of our list of what we could do for God there. And so we're just really thrilled that he chose us. And if you would like to know more, the Emerys will be outside after uh, the teaching, and you can talk to them then. So will you join me in prayer for the Emerys and as we prepare our hearts for the teaching this morning? Father, um, thank you for Sabrina and Greg and their journey and their story, which is now your story. And they've been preparing for quite a while now, and they have more preparation to go I thank you for them. I thank you for their heart seeking after you. I thank you that they are going to lay their lives down for the next two years and serve you. And we, we ask for your 
blessing. I thank you for Crossroads, who is so uh, good at sending people and, and raising up people that want to go. And I, I just am so grateful this morning. I, I see Kurt Coons, who just got back from Guatemala with the team, and Rod and, and Kevin Smith and Gabe and Allie and the people that have gone, Father, thank you. The people that are going, Father, thank you. The people that are preparing, Father, thank you. We thank you, and we hope that we bless you. Um, This morning, open our hearts to whatever you have for us as Brandon comes up. Father, give him an anointing. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Wow, there is a lot of stuff on here, Will. I am sorry. (laughs) We're family here, right? We share. Um, My name is Brandon Hurth, for those of you guys who don't know me. I'm one of the pastors here. I work with the students. um, And I just want to tell you guys from the outset, this is a heavier passage today. Uh, At the end of last week, we had uh, Jesus reclining at the table with all of his disciples. They were all together sharing a meal. And by the end of today, we're going to find that Jesus has been betrayed He's been rejected. They've all deserted him. They've all abandoned him. Um, Peter's denied him. He's being mocked and he's being beaten. It's a heavy passage. Um, But with all dark things, as you go into the dark, you really appreciate the light all the more. And so in the same way that when you crawl through a dark tunnel, you come out and you just so appreciate the sunlight. We're going to dive into some dark areas today. So grab your flashlight, get ready, um, because we're going to go after it. Before we do, though, I want to say to I know a lot of us um, are just in a dark place today. That dark tunnel feels like your life. I've been having conversations all this week. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you that there is so much hope in this passage. We serve a God who knows what it's like to suffer. And I don't mean knows like in theory or in practice or intellectually he gets the concept. We have a God who has experiential knowledge of what it's like to suffer. Let me give you kind of a silly analogy or example to help you understand what that's about. But I turned 30 a couple weeks ago, and birthdays just don't mean quite as much when you get that old. But 30 is still a big deal, and it means more than just that my age has finally caught up to my hairline. It means <laughs> that I got a surprise trip to Toronto from my wife. And so before I went to Toronto, I understood Niagara Falls. Like I could tell you some details about it, maybe some trite facts. I could point to it on a map. But I had no idea what it was really like. And now, having been there, having experienced it, I can tell you about the rumble in your chest when you feel the vibration from all that water cascading down. I can tell you where to stand for kind of that perfect picture that's going to hang on your mantle. I can tell you just what it's like to look over the edge and kind of feel your stomach rise up just a little bit. It's totally one thing to know facts, and it's totally another to know what it's really like to experience it. And we have a God who knows suffering who knows what it's like to have pain so deep that it feels like it's going to cut you in half. And we're going to look at that today. And I want you to take comfort in the fact that if you're in the pit, we serve a God who goes in the pit after us and who went in the pit after us. It's so good. Um, If you like organization, just to give you a heads up on where I'm going, we're going to be preaching four things, okay? We're going to talk about the agony, the cup, the dilemma, and the curse. The agony, the cup, the dilemma, and the curse. And if that sounds hard to remember, it's ACDC, if that helps you. ACDC, all right? 
maybe the first ACDC sermon ever preached. So let's hope it rocks. All right. Um, wow, that was bad. All right. <laughs> this is a heavy passage. I got to take any joke that I can in early on. So why don't you guys turn with me to Matthew 26, verse 36. Matthew 26, verse 36. While you guys are turning there, just to set the stage a little bit of where we are, we've just finished the Last Supper, okay? Rod talked about it last week. We had the Passover Seder. Um, we've just done that, but Jesus starts doing this kind of peculiar thing where he's, he's there at the Passover meal, and he starts looking at some of the disciples, and he's like, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me. All of you guys are going to scatter. And I'm sure the disciples are thinking, this is really weird. Like, what's going on? We'll have to talk to Judas about that betrayal thing tomorrow. Like, I'm not getting it. And so they leave... Um, the upper room and they head down and they go through what's called the Kidron Valley and they come up on the other side and it's the Mount of Olives over there. And now just a little plug for Rod and the Israel trip. You don't have to go to Israel um, to be able to read your Bible. You don't. And Rod would be the first person to say that. But it's really cool when you can go there and picture exactly what this is like. So if you have any interest in going to Israel, um, if you have you know, just any kind of, like, curiosity about it. Please email Rod, ask him some questions. He's taking applications, and it's a phenomenal trip. Um, but as we read this, I just want you guys to picture a little bit of what's going on. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that Kidron Valley. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And so I want you guys to be able to picture this. So he leaves Jerusalem. Here's all of Jerusalem. And he goes down this little valley, the Kidron Valley, and he goes up that mountain. And from there, he can overlook all of Jerusalem. He sees the Temple Mount. He can see everything going on in the city. Um, it's a perfect place to pray. But when you picture Gethsemane, a lot of times we picture it as this like tranquil garden and it's just Jesus and he's by himself. And I'm in that boat. That's what I thought for a long time. I don't want you guys to think about that when you think about this. I want you to picture Woodstock. I want you to picture a Justin Bieber concert, okay? I'm too young for Woodstock, and I've yet to check the Justin Bieber concert off my bucket list, but I imagine it's something similar, okay? That's like wall-to-wall people, and how we know that is this is Passover, and Jerusalem wasn't a huge city, and people would flock in from all over the place, and they didn't have Hiltons. They didn't have sky-rise hotels, so you slept wherever you could, and so Jesus often slept over here. We know that from Luke 21 tells us that they often spent the time there during the Passovers and during the festivals. John 18 talks about how Judas knew exactly where to go because they were often here. So Jesus in this place, it's probably packed with people, but he's overlooking the city and he's starting to pray. So let's read on. Verse 37. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. Stop right there. I promise this will be the last time I stop for a little bit. But he takes 11 people and then he gets rid of kind of the 11 and he just brings these three with him. Like these are Jesus' three closest guys. Like these are the people who, if Jesus was getting married, they would plan his bachelor party. Like these would be the people who, if he was going to share his Facebook password, which is a big deal, these would be the three guys who got it. And I can almost like imagine being like, Peter, don't po- post any more awkward statuses. Like John, seriously, if you sign up for one more farm game, like I'm going to kill you. James, you know, don't post any cat pictures on the high priest's wall. He doesn't think they're funny. These would be the guys who like he trusted with everything. And I hope you guys enjoyed that little lighthearted moment because it's about to get heavy from here on out. So these three guys, Jesus brings them with him because he's about to suffer. And he wants his closest friends right there with him. He wants them praying. He wants them interceding on his behalf. 
So let's read on. Actually, I'm going to have you guys stand for the reading of God's word here. I didn't have you do it earlier because we are going to be stopping, but like Rod says, you sit for my words, but you stand for God's. Okay, verse 37. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. You guys can grab a seat. Looking back at verse 37 and 38 again, we just read, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. I wonder what that was like for the disciples. To see this same Jesus who had grabbed a cord and he had run through the courts of the temple and he had driven people from it. This same Jesus who was just unflappable in the face of every kind of question designed to trap him up. When people brought sick to him, he just joyfully healed them. He stood eye to eye with demoniacs and was just unflinching. And here's this Jesus suddenly with that like unfamiliar look of just apprehension on his brow. What was it like for the disciples? To see Jesus say, I'm suffering to the point of death. I think this is a really unfamiliar thing to him. And I wonder why. Why is Jesus suffering this much? What's going on here? We've, we have other martyrs that seem to face their death with much more, I mean, I'm just going to say it, like seemingly much more courage or much more just resolution. If you look at Acts chapter 6, we have Stephen I'm just going to read it for you guys. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 11, it says, Then secretly they persuaded. This is the first martyr of the church. And this is going to share so many similarities to Jesus' story. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. That's exactly what happens to Jesus. Then they produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say this place and this custom that Moses, or heard him say Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So here we have Stephen. He's being accused. He's about to be stoned and his face is just perfect peace, tranquility, comfort. It's angelic. And we see that with other martyrs too. We see it with even non-Christians, Tibetan monks, Japanese kamikazes. I mean, suicide bombers that seem to face their death with just like excitement almost. 
And then what do we do with that with Jesus in the garden, agonizing to the point of death? I'm going to ask a question. It's awkward, but is Jesus, is he just being kind of like a wuss here? Is he being spineless? What's happening? And I hope that sounds really weird to you. And anytime that sounds weird, you have to ask, what's different? What's different about Jesus' death? Sure, he's going to die a painful, horrendous death. And he's going to be a martyr, just like these people. But there's something very unique. You see, Jesus' death is unlike any death in human history. Unlike any one. There's something qualitatively different. And I don't think Jesus is shying away from the physical pain like other people would be. Jesus isn't in the garden just with it down on his knees just saying, Jesus or God, if there's any way, let these nails pass from me. That's not what he says. Matter of fact, I don't think Jesus is thinking about the physical pain at all. I don't think he relishes it. He's not a masochist. But there's something far worse, something far more dangerous, something far more terrifying to Jesus than the cross even. It's the cup. It's the cup. That's what he's afraid of. And so that's the sea. That's the first thing. We looked at the agony of Christ. Now we're to the sea, the cup. Verse 39, Jesus says, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Verse 42, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Verse 44, So he left them. He went away once more and he prayed a third time saying the exact same thing. My father, If it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. So what is this cup? I think for a long time I've gotten it wrong and I've just thought, oh, this is an analogy for the cross or this just represents the responsibility that Jesus has before him. There's something so much more. This is why it's so important to know your Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the cup means one thing. Turn to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25. The cup... Is always the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah 25, starting in verse 27. I'll start reading. You guys can catch me. Then tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Drink, get drunk and vomit and fall to rise no more because of the sword I will send among you. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. You must drink it. See, I'm beginning to bring disaster on that city that bears my name. Skip down to verse 33. At that time, those slain by the Lord will be everywhere. From one end of the earth to the other, they will not be mourned or gathered up or buried, but will be like dung lying on the ground. Weep and wail, you shepherds. Roll in the dust, you leaders of the flock. For your time to be slaughtered has come. You will fall like the best of rams. I could read on, but I'm going to stop there. The cup of the wrath of God is a terrifying thing. God floods the whole earth, killing almost all of humanity and all of just creation. And it does it because he says he's remorseful. He's not even the wrath right there. He's just remorseful that he made mankind. The cup of God's wrath is a dreadful, incomprehensible, beyond terrifying thing. And that is what is bringing Jesus to tears that are falling like, or to sweat that's falling like drops of blood in the garden. It's a horrendous thing. I want to say something to you guys that many of you guys probably haven't thought about. You probably won't like me saying it at first. Um, But we, we emphasize the cross and rightfully so. 
And it's, it's the cross. It's all about the cross. It's what we sing about. It's what we talk about. It's what's on our jewelry. And like I said, rightfully so. But Jesus Christ did not save you because he died on a cross. Jesus Christ didn't save you because he died on the cross. There were hundreds of thousands of people that died on crosses in the Romans world, in the Roman world. One ancient historian said it was as many as 2,000 in a day. Others said by AD 50, it was about 500 a day was the average. Jesus dies with two people being crucified on either side and they didn't save us from anything. It's not the, co- the cross that saves us, it's the cup. It's not the cross that saves us, it's the cup that Jesus drank. He did what no one else in history could do. You see, I can't drink the cup for you because I've got my own cup of wrath that I have to deal with. And you can't drink it for him because you've got your own cup. But Jesus Christ was pure, perfect, fully God, fully man. And he had no cup in front of him. It was empty. And he looked at the Father and he allowed the Father to pour all of the wrath that was due on every single one of us in this room, in the entire world. And he looked at that terrifying cup And Jesus brought that to his lips and he drank it for us. All the wrath, all the terror that was meant for each and every one of us, he drank it. We're saved because of the cup. Does this make your heart sing? Do you understand why this is called the good news? You don't have a cup in front of you. It's empty. And if you really understand this one thing, if we really understand this one thing, it'll change everything in your life. And I think sometimes we miss it because of this little thing. Some of us stop and we think, you know what, yeah, that's great. It sounds really good, but I'm not so sure that I believe in a wrathful God. I'm not so sure that I, that I buy this whole God has to keep people accountable for their sins and for their wrongdoing. And the argument goes something like this, okay? I understand that as humans, we might need to, if someone wrongs me, I might need to hold them accountable. We, we do need to put people in jail. We need to have consequences or else there's chaos. But God, God should just transcend that. And to that I want to say, he does. But what's baked into that little question, and I'm not so sure I believe in a wrathful God, is this assumption that's way too small. The assumption is that God should just overlook wrongdoing. He should just say, oh, I look down and I know you're pretty good and I'll just overlook those shortcomings. It's not a real big deal. I hear this this from people all the time and it's tempting to believe it. But that's way down here. God is so much better than that. If God simply overlooked our sin, then we'd still be children under wrath. We'd still be deserving of full punishment and we'd have to always go around looking over our shoulder wondering, is today going to be the day that I'm exposed? Is today going to be the day that I finally realize that I'm sinful and that I deserve to be punished? Is today going to be the day that God changes his mind and decides I'm going to hold everyone to account? And we'd constantly live in fear. And so God goes way beyond just overlooking and ignoring your sin. God goes way beyond just overlooking the wrath that's up there. And he says, you know what? I'm going to take it myself. I'm going to pay your debt in full so that no one could ever put any kind of accusation at you because you're forgiven and you're washed clean and I'm going to give you my righteousness. 
I'm going to give you the righteousness of Christ. And I'm going to give you the status of firstborn sons. And that's going to be your identity. (laughs) To say I don't want to believe in a wrathful God is to believe in a God who is so small compared to how big he really is. It's so much less. So we come to this phrase that's over and over in here. Not my will, but yours. This is the D in our sermon. This is the dilemma. You see, God has kind of painted himself into a corner and we see God having really a dilemma in the garden. He looks down and hears Jesus saying, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me and I don't have to drink it, please, please let it, let it be. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And God looks down and he looks down in the garden and he says, I can't save both mankind and my son. I can't save both mankind and save my son. And I want to just step up on a little bit of a soapbox here. I'm going to apologize at the beginning. But I think in today's world right now, the biggest buzzword is, the biggest sin even really, is you can believe anything you want. You can believe, I don't care, like that unicorns come out of your bedsheet and kiss your kids goodnight. Like you can believe that. That's fine. You just can't believe that what someone else believes is wrong. The biggest sin is to be intolerant, to be bigoted. And Christians all the time get labeled with this thing that we're intolerant, we're bigoted, and all that stuff. And I've just got to gotta say something. I'm sorry. So actually, I'm not even going to apologize for it. But I'm going to get on my soapbox just for a little bit. What that is, is looking at a Savior who literally sweat blood in agony, in Gethsemane, looking at the terror that he was about to face. Looking at him and saying, yeah, I know that in the Trinity we had perfect fellowship and you, you had perfect unity from before time began and you had to pour out your full wrath on yourself. And saying, you know what? It's still not really fair though for you to say that's the only way. And I think God just looks down and he says, fair? You're right. It's not fair. There's nothing about it that's fair. How is it fair that I paid your debt? How is it fair that I suffered it all? I'm better than fair. I'm bigger than fair because you know what? You had no shot, no chance, no way. You didn't have a single one until I came down and at great expense to myself, I created a way. I created the way and it cost me everything. And I just want to say, if the God of this universe couldn't come up with a way to get both Jesus and us out of Gethsemane alive and well, then who are we to say there has to be other ways? There has to be another way. None of us have any problem continuing to pile up more and more and more debt for ourselves and more and more wrath. But the second that God pays it all for us, free gift, everyone wants to cry foul. And that's just, that's all I have to say about intolerance. I'm just going to step off of that. So I'm looking at the clock. We're going to keep moving. Um, The disciples, we've only looked at Jesus. What are the disciples doing? These disciples represent us and really the best of us in a lot of regard. They're hand selected by Jesus. They're, They're trained by him for three years. And look at what they're doing. Jesus has this trial upcoming and he's on his knees and he's praying and he's preparing for it. And these disciples, they had, Jesus just told them, you're going to fall away on account of me. You guys are going to all scatter. And to prepare for that trial, they're sleeping. That's what they're doing. 
And I don't want to hit on them too hard. In fact, Rod told me this week, he's like, don't get them too much. It says their eyes are heavy. And by this point in the night, they've probably had four cups of wine. So we're going to let them off a little bit. The Passover meal and all that stuff. You guys were here last week. He covered each one of those cups. So what we're going to do is we're going to leave Gethsemane. I wish we had time to dive into Jesus' arrest and trial. There's so much here. And I was really bumming all week. Like, what am I going to do? I I don't have time to cover all of this stuff. And so, are there any lawyers in the room? I wouldn't admit to it either, I guess. Um, I'm I'm totally kidding. I love lawyers. In fact... I started thinking like a lawyer this week and I started saying, okay, what's the precedence? How do, how do other people carry this much stuff and cover it in one sermon? And so I looked at Rod, I looked at Neil, I looked at Will, I looked at what Greg has done in this Matthew series. And you know what? I have sermonic precedence to say we're not going to be able to cover it all. Okay? We're just not. And so what I want to do is I want to give you homework. Go home, read the arrest, and read the trial. And the reason I can say that is because we're a 90-10 church. Okay? You guys hear this all the time. Greg even was talking about this. 90% of your spiritual growth should take place outside of this gathering. Okay? 90% of what's going on between you and God should be outside of these four walls. So if you're just sitting there and you're just settling for this, I mean, we're going to come here, we're going to expound the scriptures, we're going to worship together, and it's great. But if that's all that you're living off of, then you're living off of saltines. All right, you're living off of saltine crackers. It's just not enough to satisfy. So go home, read these things. Let me give you a little bit of some tips here. When you're reading the arrest, picture where Jesus is. He's up on that mountain. He's looking out over Jerusalem. I, I'm convinced he could see the torches coming. He was watching them leave Jerusalem and come towards him. And I just wonder, was he seeing like the gleam of the swords off the firelight? Was, was, did he recognize Judas in the front? You know, was was Judas even, was he walking really quickly and decisively or was there some self-doubt? Like I could still take him this way and away from Jesus. Really feel what it was like to be in that garden. What it was like for Jesus too when he not only was betrayed but Peter's lopping off this guy's ear and he's like, you still don't get it. You don't know what kind of Messiah I'm gonna be after three years. Or when they all desert him and they flee. And I want to tell you something, even when mankind fails like that, God still prevails. That kind of rhymes. Even when mankind fails, God prevails. God can still work through betrayal for his purposes. Then you guys are going to get to the, the trial of Jesus. And I use trial in a very loose word because it's definitely not objective and it's definitely not justice. Um, But we see what seems like the Vatican, if we were Roman Catholic here. This is all the leaders, all the chief priests, all the high ups. They're doing all of these kind of shady things. And the God of this universe, Jesus Christ, he goes in there and he submits himself to a crooked, humid court. And even when mankind fails here, God triumphs. So then we're going to get to Peter's denial. This is our final C, okay? We've got ADC, or ACDC, and this is the curse, So I want to read a passage for you guys. This is verse 69. I'm just going to start there. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a young servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know who you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway and another slave girl came to him and said to the the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there 
went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent, it gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. This trial of Jesus is going on in one area and Peter's got his own trial of another kind. But it's important to see who each person is before. Jesus is before the highest authorities in the land and he's holding up and he's being strong and he's being courageous. And Peter is before the lowest of the low. I'm st- Like if we look at who it was, and I'm sorry ladies right now, I'm just going to say, but that world was incredibly sexist. And women just did not have the social status of men. And beyond that, this girl in the first two, it's a slave girl. It's literally the lowest of the low in that society and I think it's meant to be that. Jesus won't buckle underneath the highest authorities, but Peter just crumbles before the nobodies of the world. And even more than that, when we look at how many times he does it, three times he does this. And it's kind of like baseball, three strikes and you're out. Like you can swing once and you can miss and it's kind of like, oh, it's, it's excusable, you're still in it. But after three times, it's like, it's definitive. You're out, Peter, you've blown it big time. But each one of these three too, it changes as we go along. He ratchets up the intensity of each one. In the first one, in verse 70, he just denies it. I don't know him. Verse 72, he swears it with an oath. I swear to you, I swear on whatever it is that he swore on, I don't know the man. And by verse 74, he's called down curses. And for a long time, I read this as curses on himself. And some of your Bibles might say that. I'm I'm telling you, I started doing some work in the original language on this. This in Greek, I'm nerdy, but this in Greek is anathematizo, okay? What it means is to pronounce anathema on someone, to pronounce a curse, to basically say, damn you. This word right here, when you're going to curse somebody or you're going to put a curse on yourself, it usually always has on himself. And so most scholars nowadays don't think Peter's cursing himself. Who does that leave for him to curse? Jesus is more than likely right in there being tried. And Peter is saying, I don't know the man. I don't like the man. You know what? Damn him to hell. This is is the rock that the church is going to be built on. And we see him crumble. And in a lot of regard, it's, it's sort of good news. Because if our Bible teaches us anything, it teaches us that when mankind is at the wheel, when mankind is controlling things, We crash it every time. Israel longs for a king and they put a man in charge and that man leads them into idolatry and all kinds of different junk. God marries Israel in the desert and they immediately start going after all kinds of different lovers and gods and nations. Mankind constantly blows it. And here we are at the moment of salvation, the biggest moment in human history in all of mankind. Even the rock has crumbled. All of mankind's gone and it's just Jesus alone. And I think that's good news. And so what I also want to do is, when you look at Peter's crumbling here, there's three things, right? He denies it three times. And that should immediately bring us back to not only the temptation of Jesus, where three times Satan tempts him, 
but also even more recently to the garden or to Gethsemane, where Jesus three times is tempted to not drink that cup and three times he overcomes it. And I want to go there real fast, but I want to look at how John introduces it. John 18.1 says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples. He crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Why a garden? Why is that important? Gethsemane means place of the olive press. Okay? I've been there. It, it's a garden in like the loosest terms. And in fact, most of these things, they don't call it a garden, most of the people. But John deliberately does, and we have to ask why. And this is where it is so key. You can't help but read this passage and think of the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, we see God makes mankind and he leaves them alone in the garden. And they're alone in the garden with just Satan. And God has said to them, obey me and you'll live. He puts the tree in front of them and he says, obey me and you'll live. And they blow it and they fail. And really, that's the message of all throughout Scripture. God continually says, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, obey me and you'll live. Disobey and you're going to die. And we constantly blow it over and over again. And then we come to this garden. And the disciples all fall asleep and they leave Jesus alone. And God's there and God puts a tree in front of Jesus. This time it's a cross. And he says, obey me and you'll die. Obey me and you'll die. And Jesus does what we never do. And Jesus obeys. And Jesus goes to that cross. He grabs that terrible cup and he drinks every single drop of it. Do you guys know this Savior? Do you know him? We're going to close now. And rather than pray for all of you guys, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of time. I'm going to give you some time to just spend with with God here, Will, and everyone can come back up. We have the communion table set up, and you guys are free to go get it whenever you want. But when you do, I want you to taste that sweet juice. And I want you to think of everything that it represents. New life, forgiveness, salvation, grace, love. It represents every bit of it. But after you're finished drinking it, I want you to do something. I want you to look at that empty cup in your hand. And I want you to remember that there's a cup with your name on it that stands empty today. The cup of God's wrath. And it's empty because Christ drank every awful, agonizing drop of it. Let me give you some time.